It's Jared. The French philosopher Michel Foucault makes this argument that all of society is a prison because we're subjected to societal norms, laws, and just kind of observe each other in a way that pressures us to conform to certain standards. And he specifically mentions that schools are like prisons. You have a set period you have to go to, which is in a set place, at least in a normal world, at a set time, again, in a non-COVID world, that basically resembles prison, except you're learning and not serving time. I only mention this because a lot of people paint school kind of as a prison itself. I mean, most of the listeners here are high schoolers who could probably attest to one point or another that they really just detested school and felt trapped in it. But that aside, there is a much larger problem that's connecting school and prison. And when I talk about prison, I'm not talking about it in the abstract. I'm literally talking about the criminal justice system. The word school to prison pipeline has really entered our vocabulary in the past year or so and got amplified during the George Floyd incident. But a lot of times a word like school to prison pipeline sounds very technical, but is used in a wide variety of circumstances and never broken down. So what is the school to prison pipeline? And how can someone do exactly just that? Go from, you know, kindergarten, which seems so innocent, all the way until the criminal justice system. To break that down, the social media manager of contested politics, Catherine Beck, is going to join us and talk about the evidence she's found and what she's learned talking about the criminal justice system and the school to prison pipeline during her youth and government campaign. If you're interested in both school policies, such as dress code, drug policies, and weapons violations, or the criminal justice system at large, I think this episode is extremely insightful. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Jared. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. As I said, anytime you go back to class for the first time, you're always so rusty and it feels like you just have never done work before. So I'm in that phase, but we're moving out of it shortly. So that's exciting. But I'm excited to be here to talk with you today about, I think, an issue that in the past year or so has really become part of our lexicon. And a lot of people are using the term school to prison pipeline very colloquially which is both good, but oftentimes that kind of skims over some of the details. So I'm really excited to talk about all the nitty gritty here with you today. But before we get into that, you're not a normal guest. You're part of the contested team with us. So if you want to introduce yourself to all our listeners and just say who you are, what you do here at Contested, and then we can dive into the whole school prison pipeline jazz. Yeah, so I'm Catherine Beck. I manage the social media here at Contested and love being a part of the team, love what Contested does. What Jared and Adam have going is great. Really getting to understand political issues in 30 minutes or less is a godsend for sure. Thanks. It always feels good when someone, I guess, appreciates what you're doing. And we're so glad to have you on board. Adam and I have discussed, you know, our social media is kind of lacking. And if you're anything political, you need to be on Twitter. And neither me or him are on Twitter. So I'm glad that we have someone who is. And with that, all of you should go follow our Twitter because that's going to get active soon. And you know, why wait for a week on an episode when you can get it on Twitter? So with that said, Catherine, how are you involved or how did you become interested in the school to prison pipeline? Yeah, as you mentioned before, in the past year and especially over the summer, 
the school to prison pipeline really started to be referenced a lot, especially in progressive circles. And I was definitely interested. I wanted to learn more. And when I decided to run for leadership in youth and government, I knew that my platform was going to be on criminal justice reform. And I thought it was a great opportunity to really dive in, do some more research. And some of the statistics uh, were just astounding, as well as some of the misconceptions. Yeah. And I think, as I kind of mentioned, when you use a word that's so loaded, like school to prison pipeline, often you're going to get very different uses of it. And not one is necessarily more correct than the other, but it's good to kind of understand what it is in the most basic sense. So what is the school to prison pipeline in kind of the broadest sense? And how did that name kind of come to be? Because it sounds very, very technical in some ways. The school to prison pipeline essentially is a system of policies and also of attitudes and implicit biases that push students out of public schools and into the criminal justice system, specifically Black students, low-income students, and disabled students are the most affected. And I'm not sure that there's really a specific time or reason that the name came to be. We just have the systems and it is kind of like a pipeline funneling students off of the path to career or the path to college and into our criminal justice system. I think you touched on the main thing here, which is it doesn't affect people equally here, right? And that kind of the whole idea of the school to prison pipeline is that it's not that every school is kind of so failing in a sense that our society is becoming a bunch of delinquents, but rather that schools are setting up certain populations to not enter society in, I guess, the way that we as a society want to, but instead kind of put them on a path prone to crime in general. So if we could kind of take a step back, maybe into the history books here, when does this all start, I suppose? And you can make the argument it starts at the very inception of a multicultural society, but specifically the idea of the school to prison pipeline, where does that all kind of come out of? I think really the first time we see any sort of reference to the school to prison pipeline is the Reagan era. So the 1980s, when the United States started to develop this tough on crime approach, um, the war on drugs, and schools started to absorb some of those ideals and some of those policies. So we see things like mandatory minimums in our criminal justice system reflected in our schools as zero tolerance policies. Yeah, I think that's an interesting kind of comparison you set up there. And I think the main thing I've always thought about the school to prison pipeline is that a lot of the the kind of facilitators, the policies that create this are, are not evidently problematic, right? Most parents, I would argue, are saying, hey, you know, we want zero tolerance policies for drug usage, for dress code violations, for all of these things at school. Why is that a problem then? So what would you kind of say to those people who are like, wow, you know, these zero tolerance policies are just kind of weeding out the bad people? Right. I think one of the most obvious zero tolerance policies that seems to be the best is the zero tolerance policy for weapons on campus, which really started to become mainstream after Columbine and as school shootings became 
more prevalent in society. And a lot of schools have, if you're caught with a weapon on campus, automatic out-of-school suspension and potentially even expulsion. But the problem is that most of the time, weapon is not defined in strict mm. terms. So a Boy Scout who has his pocket knife in his backpack, Boy Scouts are going on a camping trip and he brings it with him to school, probably not even thinking about a zero tolerance policy for weapons, has no intent to cause harm to students. There's no reason for that student to face an out-of-school suspension or an expulsion. A girl perhaps will be staying after school to watch a football game, is going to be walking back home alone in the dark, has some pepper spray with her. That could be categorized as a weapon that could go straight to an out-of-school suspension. And it's not that there shouldn't be consequences for breaking rules, but when we see the same consequence applied broadly uh, to large groups of students is when it starts to become harmful because students who experience out-of-school suspensions or expulsions are three times more likely than their peers to end up in the criminal justice system within a year. And that's an ACLU statistic. So if we're taking a student who may already be struggling in class or already have other barriers that are preventing them from reaching success with as much ease as some of their peers, and we put another barrier in front of them when there's no reason for it, that's when it becomes harmful because a student who ends up with a pocket knife in their backpack that they forgot about or pepper spray or taser keychains are also very popular, self-defense, and they have no intention of causing harm to students or administrators on campus, there's no reason for them to face the same punishments as a student who brings a weapon to school with the intent of causing harm. Yeah, I think that's really important because, as I mentioned, right, these policies on their face don't seem to be discriminatory, right? Zero tolerance for weapons. Most people say, yeah, school shootings, a problem. We don't really want weapons on campus. The question, I think, as you point out, kind of brilliantly here is that the implementation of this is very spotty and really left up to personal bias, right? Oftentimes it's school administrators saying, I'm just going to make a judgment call as to what's a weapon. Because I agree with you. We don't see stories about people, you know, with either some sort of carabiner or pocket knife that's like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm part of Boy Scouts or a wood shop. Like those are not the people who are getting suspended for weapons violations. So I think I agree with you that a lot of times it's this really arbitrary implementation of these policies that leads to all these disparate outcomes because you're having just groups saying we're going to subject you to this policy but not others and this kind of you were talking about there at least for a little bit is that once you're out of school you're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system why is that necessarily the case after say one expulsion right i think that the biggest reason is because within a school, you have friends, you have a support system, you probably have at least one teacher that you like seeing every day. And there is a lot more structure, a lot more focus on um, going to college or getting a job after high school. You have, at least at my school, seminars on how to be successful, how to get good grades, why to stay in school. And once you're off of this path, and I don't say this with any disrespect to alternative high schools, many of them are excellent, but once you're off this path, you've lost some of your support system, many of your friends who are still in mainstream school. And 
the focus may no longer be on creating a great future. It may no longer be on going to college or getting a career, and it may be on just trying to graduate high school. And as we lower expectations, then a lot of times a student's self-worth will lower with that and they lose motivation or feel like they've already failed. So they're more likely to drop out of school. Once you've dropped out of school, there are a lot less options. Yeah, I think you touch on a lot there and a lot of it is is really insightful, which is the, the ultimate answer I always kind of give when someone asks, like, how does this happen all is that schools for a lot of people, specifically public schools, serve as more than just an educational facility, right? For a lot of people, it's where you get your meals. It could be the only time that, as you said, you kind of have a, a structured schedule that you have a lot of resources provided for you, uh, internet access, at least kind of at the beginning of the internet. Li- school libraries were kind of the main source for a lot of people to have internet access, especially again in these kind of disadvantaged groups. And as you said, yeah, once you take that away, you really kind of allow that void to fester and you allow something else to take the place of school. So I kind of now want to shift gears slightly into some ways that a lot of people have been working on correcting the school to prison pipeline, because that's a lot of what this discussion has focused on. And if we said the policies themselves, they're flawed, but again, a lot of them are not so overtly flawed. What can really be done then to keep school retention numbers high and then thus crime low? I think some of the easiest ways on a district level are just to reframe the zero tolerance policies so that each case is handled on an individualized basis and each student is given a fairer chance. And it's still difficult there because there is still implicit bias in many administrators about what weapons are dangerous in which person's hands. But by allowing students to advocate for themselves in that space, there is more opportunity for them to get appropriate punishment. And also with extracurriculars, one thing that my school has that I think would be great to see in all public schools is the waiver opportunity, where if you're academically ineligible for extracurriculars, you're able to sign a waiver and you go to tutoring, like one lunch period a week, and you have to meet with your teachers regularly and you have to make improvement in your grades throughout the season, but it gives students who want to do well an opportunity to do well without taking away a motivating factor, which in a lot of cases is sports or the arts. And then on a larger level, I think that replacing school resource officers with mental health professionals can have a really positive impact on students because all of the good that school resource authors have done can be done just as well by a mental health professional. I think that it's easier to approach somebody with a confidentiality promise and training to say, I've been falling in with the wrong crowd, or I've started using drugs and I want to stop, or I'm struggling in school, can you help me? As opposed to going up to a police officer and saying, I've started using drugs, can you help me find resources? And that officer is more likely to use legal standing and say, well, drugs are illegal, so we're going to have to do this through the justice system instead of saying, well, this choice was not 
the best choice you could have made, but you asked for help. That shows me that you care. I want to help you. I think that there is some legal rules that police officers are bound by that prevents them from helping students. Also, a lot of times we see in public schools when there are police officers on campus, school administrators will turn over situations that should have been handled in school to law enforcement. So that could be a fight. Every public high school has fights. Most of them are handled within the school system. Both students receive proper punishment. But if we are handing it over to law enforcement, it's more likely for there to be a school-based arrest. It's more likely for there to be assault and battery charges brought upon a person. And that is not necessarily the best option for students and for the school culture and community as a whole. Yeah, I think that's important. I think a a lot of the solution is like this problem crosses a lot of different individual issues. So it's hard to kind of say, ah, here's where the solution is. But I think you touch on on a few things. I really like your extracurricular point. As I said earlier, I think it's it's a wise one. And I think a lot of people have the logic reversed on that. And as far as school resource officers go, I mean, this has been kind of, this touches into a much larger issue, I guess, of school safety that we won't kind of dive into fully here. But I would tend to agree that, you know, school officers are policemen, not kind of educators. So I think there you're going to have a different outcome, as you're saying, than, than one you might want. And I guess kind of connecting it all together here, then if someone does find themselves, I guess, kind of on the wrong side of this, right? Because this can kind of seem insurmountable in a lot of ways. Would you have kind of any advice? I know this is somewhat of an odd question to say like, look, I like this is kind of some of the early problems you can face. Here's what you can do on maybe an individual level, I guess is the better question. Definitely. I think for students who are struggling, reaching out to maybe a teacher whose class you really enjoy or another school administrator who you're friendly with, people who are in your corner. If you have a good relationship with family members, there are a lot of people who want you to be successful and want to help you. And all you have to do is ask. And that can be very difficult to do, but making sure that the people you're hanging out with aren't pressuring you into doing things you're not comfortable with and making sure that you realize that you have options and you have people who want to help you and who want to put you on a path uh, where you can be successful. I think coaches are also a great resource. In my experience, coaches really care about their athletes and want them to be successful both on and off the field. So if you play sport, a coach is a great option. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of people within the school system who want their students to succeed. It's just about finding the right person, I should say. Yeah, I completely agree that you you can always try to find someone in your corner. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. For all our listeners, check out her social media. She's doing a really good job with that. And you'll obviously kind of hear it quicker than you'll hear the episodes and you'll get some sneak peeks as to what's going on in our episodes. But Catherine, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking to us with this. Thank you for having me. It was great.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and all of our social media accounts. Catherine would really appreciate it. Addition, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. We're going to be changing some things up at Contested going forward, where our episode formats will include more of a summary of the week's news since our blog has gone dormant of recent. So we really want to hear your thoughts on that. The next episode we do is going to be styled differently, so feel free to let us know what you want to see in all of our episodes going forward. A big shout out to Catherine Beck for coming on, Adam for doing the editing, and all of you for listening. Until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.